We know telehealth expanded a lot during the pandemic. Now we know how much. The Health and Human Services Office of Inspector General has pulled together data showing that in the first year, 2020, more than 28 million Medicare beneficiaries received telehealth services. For more of what they learned, we turn to the IG Senior Counselor for Medicaid Policy, Andrew Van Landingham. Andrew, good to have you back. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate the opportunity to talk about our work. And so we knew that, again, that there was a lot of this going on. And before we get into the details, are these special provisions for the pandemic, such as coverage by Medicare and Medicaid for telehealth, still in place? All of the telehealth flexibilities that were sort of the subject of this report are still in place. To give your listeners sort of a a feel for what those were, pre-pandemic, Medicare only covered telehealth in certain situations Primarily, it was restricted to Medicare patients who lived in rural areas, and you also couldn't access telehealth at your home. You had to physically drive to a doctor's office to then do a telehealth visit with another doctor who was further away. So those two main restrictions really limited telehealth utilization in Medicare pre-pandemic. But as you said, once the flexibilities were put into place, we saw that about two in five Medicare beneficiaries, close to 30 million, were using telehealth during that first year of the pandemic. So those flexibilities really dramatically increased who was able to use telehealth. And then really, they through this report, we're able to dive deeper about how they use telehealth. Yeah. So tell us more about, first of all, who was primarily using it demographically? What did you find here? When you dive into the sort of demographic characteristics of the beneficiaries who use telehealth the most during this first year. And again, this is a, a unique year, talking about the first year of the pandemic, you know, many places have you know, stay-at-home orders, but we do think that this sort of is a broader trend that policymakers and others should be aware of. And so for the most part, we're seeing that beneficiaries in urban areas were more likely to use those in rural areas. About 45% of all beneficiaries who lived in urban areas were using telehealth versus if you look at the rural areas, about a third of beneficiaries who lived in rural areas were using telehealth. So that difference indicates that you know urban beneficiaries across both high affluent areas and lower income areas are using telehealth more frequently. Sure. That one stands in contrast to the earlier policy of only rural people could use it if they could get to the nearest doctor to hopscotch to another doctor. So that kind of shows that that policy might have been in need of revision, let's say. Yeah, absolutely. I think as Congress and others think through what does the future of telehealth look like, this distinction is an important one given that earlier restriction. And so if they really want to address access, Congress and others will have to think about what's appropriate for Medicare beneficiaries in urban areas to access telehealth. All right. So urban versus rural, what else did you find about the people using? Dual eligible beneficiaries, which is a special category of individuals who are typically sicker than your normal Medicare beneficiary, and they get coverage both through Medicare and Medicaid. In large part, most of these folks have pretty serious, significant cognitive or other functional impairments that require a lot of health care. And they were more likely to use telehealth compared to their peers, both in a demographic and geographic sense. Uh, when we controlled for those features, we still saw that these folks really took advantage of the telehealth flexibilities in a way that outpaced their peers again there. So that's an interesting perspective, given that some of the policies across both Medicare and Medicaid may affect their telehealth access in the future. And it is an area that Congress and others will have to pay attention to to make sure that those you know really medically needy individuals can continue that access in the future. And telehealth can take many forms. 
we tend to think of it as, you know, being on your smartphone or your computer camera, but it can be a telephone call. And I guess those are the two main ones. What did you find with respect to what was the most used mode of telehealth? In a prior report, we did look at the differences between sort of modalities. And here the data is pretty limited. So we don't have great views on what's the largest modality. But in this report, what we did find is for you know about six services that we can tell are always used using a phone call. We call it audio only. Those beneficiaries who used it, there's about one-fifth of beneficiaries who used audio-only services. They tended to use just phone calls almost exclusively. So if you were doing telehealth via a phone, odds are you were doing all of your sort of telehealth visits via the phone. And that's an important point, in part because there's also another restriction in Medicare that required telehealth to be provided via a video call, via an interactive communication. And the telehealth flexibilities allowed for more services to be provided over the phone or through other audio-only mechanisms. And so again, as Congress and others think through what does the future of telehealth look like, there is a significant part of the Medicare patient population that relies almost solely on audio only and taking away access from those groups may impede future you know, availability of services for them, including obviously for folks in, in rural areas. There's been other studies that rural beneficiaries really don't have great access to things like broadband or internet connectivity that supports that interactive video communication. So they tend to rely on audio only. So again, another data point that we think stakeholders are going to have to really pay attention to as they think through what are the appropriate policies moving forward. We're speaking with Andrew Van Landingham, Senior Counselor for Medicare Policy in the Office of Inspector General at Health and Human Services. And that point about audio only belies the trend that's happening in telemedicine coming slowly, but that is the use of medical device peripherals that plug into smartphones that can give practitioners a close-up view of what's on your skin or your blood pressure, whatever the case might be. Not quite there yet, but that's the trend. Watches now do all of this. And so the audio-only people could be left behind in that trend. Yeah, I think it's important to remember that when we're talking about telehealth, uh, it can mean a lot of different things uh, based on what you're talking about and what use. Those sorts of devices are typically referred to as remote patient monitoring. And Medicare just started paying for those as a service in 2019. And uh, there was a recent article in Health Affairs this week that sort of dove into what's the usage around remote patient monitoring look like. And I can say we're still in the early innings, uh, I think writ large in healthcare and understanding how that's being used, but certainly there's a place for it. HHSOIG wrote a rule a couple of years ago that helped expand access to those types of technologies in certain situations. You can imagine where a doctor who's helping a patient manage a chronic condition like diabetes having something like a continuous glucose monitor is really going to help that patient and provider keep track of their insulin numbers, making sure that they're being consistent to avoid spikes, which can lead to bad outcomes for diabetic patients. And that sort of care coordination model is something we've looked at for years. And so we're actually uh, getting ready to start an audit looking at remote patient monitoring devices in Medicare and look forward to sharing those results with you and your listeners, hopefully in the future. Yeah, let's hope the blood pressure remote is as accurate as a good old-fashioned column of mercury, which I think is still the best, but, you know, that's me. Anyway, getting back to the report on telehealth then, what were your main recommendations for Medicare Medicaid, for CMS? When you're looking at the future of telehealth, 
policy and payment policies. There's lots of different areas that you know policymakers have to consider: cost, quality, access, health equity, program integrity. And this report really gets at that access angle of policy. And so we recommend to CMS to really take steps to ensure that they can transition from the pandemic mode with these flexibilities to longer term policies that can improve access, but also consider those other factors at the same time. Uh, this is not a, a one dimension problem. In fact, there's gonna be probably years of study necessary to get this right. But the access angle here, I think is the most important because if those flexibilities turn off, you could see roughly 30 million beneficiaries lose pretty significant access to services that they, they took advantage of from their home and from elsewhere. And so that's something that CMS is going to have to pay attention to closely, but it's also going to require uh, some congressional action as well. Most of these restrictions are done at the congressional or the statutory level, and so additional work is going to have to be done there. And the president's budget uh, in fiscal year 23 did include support for changing some of these flexibilities, but we are closely monitoring those efforts moving forward. And this is really going, in some ways, this whole complex of questions is even bigger than CMS. I imagine, say, HHS Office of Civil Rights would come into play here for data privacy and so forth, and also HRSA, the whole quality question. Yeah, that's right. Uh, HHS at large has a, a significant influence in the future of telehealth policy. As you mentioned, the Office of Civil Rights does have some privacy controls here related to how do you ensure the protection of data via telehealth? And so I still think uh, a lot of us are learning about that. They recently issued some additional guidance on how to protect conversations over the phone via telehealth. Uh, We're uh, doing some studies right now looking at the Office of Civil Rights and how they have used things like their security rule to maintain the sort of cybersecurity protections around telehealth. And there's lots of other governing bodies looking at that, including the National Institutes of Science and Technology. So this is not just an HHS problem at all. This is something that uh, lots of different parts of the government, insurance companies, providers are going to be looking at for many years. Andrew Van Landingham is Senior Counselor for Medicaid Policy in the Office of Inspector General at Health and Human Services. As always, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. Pleasure to talk to you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to that latest report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. 
Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, so not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, and he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, 
I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I 
had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, <laughs> and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Wendy's new French toast sticks are so delicious, some are saying that they're better than their mom's breakfast. Excuse me, did you just say Wendy's new French toast sticks are better than my breakfast? Mom, is that you? Answer the question. I said some people are saying that because they're so crispy on the outside and fluffy on the inside and perfect in every way. Uh Uh-huh. And what do you think? I think it's time to tell people to choose wisely. Choose Wendy's new sweet and crispy homestyle French toast sticks. That's still not an answer. At participating U.S. Wendy's during breakfast hours.